If you have your Bibles, turn to Daniel chapter 7. We are going to see this morning in Daniel chapter 7, the God whose kingdom is forever. And so we just sang it, so now we're going to see it in Daniel chapter 7. But I want to begin with a, with a question. It's kind of an exercise, not, not like a physical you know, exercise like you're thinking, but, but just a, uh, an exercise. If I, were to, if I were to stand up here and I, I had a book, you couldn't see the cover, but you just saw I had a book, and I began to read it to you, and if the first line of the book were to go, once upon a time, or let's say the book, I begin reading it, and the first line is, a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away, if I began the book in one of those two ways, you would know instinctively that the story that followed was, was a fairy tale in the first case or a science fiction story in the, in the second case. And thus, you wouldn't expect the characters or the events of the story to be taken literally. So you wouldn't read the story and, and hear about a talking wolf or a giant beanstalk and think, oh my goodness, there's a talking wolf or there's a giant beanstalk somewhere. Or you wouldn't listen to the story and then think, there's an order of Jedi somewhere that I have to find. Or there, there are Sith lords out there on the dark side. You wouldn't, you wouldn't read that story and then think those things because the nature of literature determines how you understand it. Just like on Thursday, I, I looked at the Virginian pilot and the first sentence of a news story read, quote, a man was shot and killed in an apartment complex in Thursday, in Hampton on Thursday morning. So I read that and I didn't think it was a fairy tale. I didn't think it was fiction. I realized, I read and thought, unlike a fairy tale or a Star Wars movie, someone actually was killed in Hampton in an apartment complex on Thursday, October 14th. We read things based on how we understand the genre or the type of writing it is. And, and we do this instinctively. One, one commentator, humorously, I had to share this quote, but, but he, he made the point when he says this, quote, We instinctively know... That a sentence that begins, quote, the stars will fall from heaven, the sun will cease its shining, and the moon will drip blood. If a sentence begins that way, it's not going to end, and the rest of the country will be partly cloudy with scattered showers. Right? We know that instinctively. Those are two different types of literature. And your understanding of the nature of the literature shapes your expectations and what you find in that literature. And so I begin with this because we're coming to a part in Daniel's, in the book of Daniel, where, where a great shift is occurring, a great shift between Daniel 6 and Daniel 7, and that shift is in the type of literature we find. So Daniel chapters 1 through 6, it's, it's narrative, it's stories. Yeah, there's dreams and visions, but, but there are actual events that are recorded that are taking place. And so now, verses, or chapter 7 through 12, there are going to be dreams and visions, but, but these aren't played out in actual events in the story. It's, it's dreams and visions, and so with this shift, with this change in literature, comes a shift in our reading strategy. And so what we're going to find in Daniel chapter 7 through 12 is, is what is called apocalyptic literature. And so apocalyptic, that, that word comes from a Greek word, apocalypsis, which simply means revelation. And so what, what we're going to find in this apocalyptic literature is that it's, it's revealing something. It's not coincidental that the other place in the Bible where apocalyptic literature is found, the most common other place is the book of, Bible, book of the Bible that shares that name. It's the book of Revelation. It's the book of the Apocalypse, Apocalypsis, the Revelation. That's the last book in the Bible. And with apocalyptic, apocalyptic literature in Daniel, just like with the book of Revelation, the genre seeks to reveal or, or pull back the curtain 
on the reality behind what, what's happening here and now. So it, it's, it's a peek into the heavenly realities. It's a divine revelation of what's really going on. And in both cases, in Daniel and in Revelation, the focus is on the end times. How is the world going to end? And what you notice, what we've seen throughout the book of Daniel, and what you see over and over again in the book of Revelation, is that the timeline leading down to the end, though trying and difficult and filled with opposition and persecution and and great suffering, though that's the case, the revelation is always a revelation that is intended to give hope and filled with optimism. It's a peek behind the scenes that says, yeah, we know it's hard, but, but it's going to be okay in the end. That's why it's not wrong to summarize the book of Revelation by saying Jesus wins in the end. And that, that's right. That's the point of the revelation. And so the same could be said for this section of Daniel. The main point, especially of Daniel chapter 7, is what we've seen over and over again throughout the first six chapters, which is simply God is in control. And in the end, God's going to deliver his people. His kingdom is going to be forever. That's the point of Daniel 7. One commentator summarized biblical apocalyptic literature when he said it's a sort of prophecy that seeks to enlighten and encourage a people despised and cast off by the world. And it does so with a vision of the God who's going to come and impose his kingdom on the wreckage and rebellion of human history. And it communicates this message through the use of wild, scary, imaginative, bizarre, and head-scratching imagery. And so we're gonna, that's what we're going to read this morning is some wild, head-scratching, bizarre imagery. But as we read these, I, I just want you to know at the outset, I'm not going to get caught up trying to identify the specifics because that's not the point. This genre is not meant to be, to be pressed in and say, well, what is this? It's like when we read the, the parable of the prodigal son. We don't look at it and say, oh, well, what does the ring represent? Well, well, what is the robe? What does that mean? We've got to find the meaning. No, we say, well, the son was welcomed back. What, he was, he, the, the father was longing. He welcomed him back. He was part of the family again. And so we're going to get caught up in the details. And so that's the point here in Daniel 7. I, I want you to leave here getting the main point. And so I just, let me just tell you at the outset, all of your questions are not going to be answered. And I'm okay with that because I think you can get out of here with the main point without having all of your questions answered. And so my aim is that the main idea won't escape us. Well, let's read. That's enough talk. Let's read. You can follow along. I'm going to read Daniel chapter 7. I'm going to start in verse verse 1, and I'm going to end with verse 28. So I'm going to read the whole chapter. So follow along as I read, and then we will work through it. Daniel 7, beginning in verse 1. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel saw a dream and visions of his head as he lay in bed. Then he wrote down the dream, and he told the sum of the matter. Daniel declared, I saw in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea, and four great beasts came up out of the sea, different from one another. The first was like a lion and had eagle's wings. Then as I looked, its wings were plucked off, and it was lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man, and the mind of a man was given to it. And behold, another beast, a second one, like a bear, and it was raised up on one side. It had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth, and it was told, Arise, devour much flesh. After this, I looked, and behold, another, like a leopard with four wings of a bird on its back, and the beast had four heads, and dominion was given to it. After this, I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, terrifying and dreadful and exceedingly strong. It had great iron teeth, it devoured and it broke in pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. It was different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. 
I considered the horns, and behold, there came up among them another horn, a little one, before which three of the first horns were plucked up by the roots. And behold, in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man, and a mouth speaking great things. Verse 9, as I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames, and its wheels were burning fire. A stream, a stream of fire issued and came out from before him. A thousand thousands served him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court sat in judgment, and the books were opened. I looked then because of the sound of the great words that the horn was speaking, and as I looked, the beast was killed, and its body destroyed and given over to be burned with fire. As for the rest of the beast, their dominion was taken away, but their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man, and he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. And his dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed." And as for me, Daniel, my spirit within me was anxious, and the visions of my head, they alarmed me. And so I approached one of those who stood there and asked him the truth concerning all this. So he told me, and he made known to me the interpretation of the things. The four great beasts are four kings who shall arise out of the earth. But the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever, forever and ever. Then I desired to know the truth about the fourth beast, which was different from all the rest, exceedingly terrifying with its teeth and iron claws of bronze, and which devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left with its feet, and about the ten horns that were on its head, and the other horn that came up, and before which the three of them fell, the horn that had eyes and a mouth that spoke great things and that seemed greater than its companions. And as I looked, this horn, it made war with the saints, and it prevailed over them until the Ancient of Days came, and judgment was given for the saints of the Most High, and, time, and the time came when the saints possessed the kingdom. Thus he said, Daniel wants to know all those things, so this is the answer. Thus he said, as for the fourth beast, there shall be a fourth kingdom on earth, which shall be different from the other kingdoms, and it shall devour the whole earth and trample it down and break it to pieces. As for the ten horns out of the, this kingdom, ten kings shall rise, and another shall arise after them, and he shall be different from the former ones and shall put down three kings." He shall speak words against the Most High and shall wear out the saints of the Most High and shall think to change the times and the law and they shall be given into his hand for a time, times, and half a time. But the court shall sit in judgment and his dominion shall be taken away to be consumed and destroyed to the end. And the kingdom and the dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High. His kingdom shall be an everlasting kingdom, and all dominions shall serve and obey him. Here is the end of the matter. As for me, Daniel, my thoughts greatly alarmed me and my color changed, but I kept the matter in my heart. Let me pray for us. Now, Father, I ask that as we walk through chapter 7, that you would encourage us with this vision and this dream. Lord, encourage us, your people, to persevere and hold fast to Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Some of you maybe were praying, God, thank you that I'm not Nathan up there having to explain this chapter. But as we walk through, there, there's three sections. We're, we're going to go through it the same way that we go through every, every text that we, that we go through on a Sunday morning. 
And so the three sections, we're going to see first, verses 1 through 8, the nature of worldly kingdoms. So that's going to be the, the, looking at the four beasts. And second, verses 9 through 14, the nature of God's rule, which is kind of inter, intervened in, in, in the vision there. And then the end of the matter, the largest section, verses 15 through the end of the chapter, verse 28. So the nature of worldly kingdoms, the nature of God's rule, and then the end of the matter. Now, as we come to this chapter, just before we look at verses 1 through 8, I just want to make one point that I think will help you understand why I'm going to understand and explain this chapter the way I do. And the point is this, that, that Daniel chapters 2 through 7 form a, a, a set. This is a unique section of Daniel, and it's unique, and we know it is because it's the only place in the, in the whole Bible that is not in either Hebrew or Greek. And so in Daniel, chapter 1 is written in Hebrew, and chapters 8 through 12 are written in Hebrew, but chapters 2 through 7 are written in Aramaic. And so it's like in Daniel's book, there's this subset, this subsection within the larger section. And so when we look at these chapters, 2 through 7, they are, are really helpful in, in helping interpret the other. And they're kind of like this, this progress where chapter 2 and 7 make the same point, chapters 3 and 6 make the same point, and chapter 4 and 5 make the same point. And so let me just walk you through. So chapter 4 and 5, if you remember, that's where you have Nebuchadnezzar and Belshazzar, these proud kings who, who the Lord humbles. Nebuchadnezzar responds positively, and Belshazzar doesn't, and he's, he's judged. But the point of chapter 4 and 5 is, is, is proud kings will always be judged. Right? There's no room for proud kings in, in the world's kingdoms. That's chapter 4 and 5 of this section. Well, chapters 3 and 6... It's God's people being faithful in the midst of severe opposition and are delivered. So you had the three friends in chapter 3, and you had Daniel in chapter 6, the fiery furnace and the, the lion's den. They make the similar, almost exact same point. So that means when we come to chapter 2 and chapter 7, they also make the same, or at least a very similar point. And so if you remember, chapter 2 was Nebuchadnezzar's dream of the statue. And in Nebuchadnezzar's dream, there's four sections of the statue that represent four kingdoms. And at the end of his vision, what happens to the four kingdoms? They're destroyed by another, by a big rock that represents God's kingdom. And so God's kingdom is established, the other kingdoms are put down, and God's kingdom rules and reigns forever. That's chapter 2. Well, so when we come to chapter 7, there's four kingdoms, four beasts that represent four kingdoms, we're told. And at the end, what remains? None of the kingdoms, but God's kingdom. And so these, this structure of chapters 2 through 7, I think really help us understand chapter 7 because I think 2, chapter 2, helps us interpret Daniel 7. And so in the same way the stone destroys all human kingdoms and is established forever, so also the Son of Man is going to make an end to all human kingdoms and will establish the rule and reign of God forever. The same idea. And so at the end of the day, Daniel needs to be reminded that God is in control. And so it's not statues, it's not sections of a statue, but it's these beasts. And they're really scary and things seem out of control. And so this, this chapter is there to tell Daniel, no matter how crazy it seems, no matter how bad it gets, you need to be reminded God's in control. The Israelites later would be, need to be reminded God is still in control. We here today need to be reminded God is in control. There is one kingdom that will last forever. And it's, it's not a kingdom of this world. And so that's the point. There is a God whose kingdom will last forever. And those of us who have been united to Christ and reconciled to God through Jesus Christ, we are part of that kingdom here and now, and that kingdom will extend forever. 
And so we're simply waiting, longing for the consummation of that kingdom, and we know it's going to come. And so that's the point here. That's the main idea. Well, let's look. Verses 1 through 8, the nature of worldly kingdoms. So we start out here with Daniel chapter 7, verses 1 through 8, and we see that, that as Daniel continues, we're no longer following a chronological timeline. So we see the, the first verse of Daniel 7, he's writing in the first year of Belshazzar. So, so there was Belshazzar before there was Darius. And so he's writing between the end of chapter 4 and the beginning of chapter 5. So chronological order is not, is not in play here. Daniel is now in this section recounting dreams that he had during the first six chapters. And here we find Daniel at this time when, when he is known as the interpreter. He's the one who knows dreams and visions. Now he needs someone to help interpret dreams for him. It's like God's way of keeping him humble. But he's going to seek help. He's going to find it. But first, he just recounts the vision, the four beasts. So, so notice there, verses 1 through 8, these four beasts. We have the, these four beasts that, that, that come out of the sea, which is, which is just imagery to, to talk about chaos. There, there's not order. There's not peace. There's chaos. There's, there's stirring within the ocean. And, and, and this, this divine wind... Right? Did you notice that it's stirring? There's winds of heaven are stirring up, and it seems that these beasts come out as if they're provoked by this divine activity, but these beasts come out one after the other. So first, the first beast comes out, and he says it's like a lion with eagle's wings. And so it's a frightening creature, and what Daniel's doing is he's using real-world animals to illustrate the nature of these beasts that he sees. We have to remember that these visions are in the realm of visionary metaphor and imagery rather than straightforward description. And so that's to say, there's not a king or kingdom that's literally going to be a lion with eagle's wings. We shouldn't read that and think, oh my goodness, I'm never going to vote for the lion with eagle's wings. It's not literal in that sense. This is visionary. This is imagery. And the imagery of this beast is, is fear and danger. There's a lion with wings. I mean, maybe, maybe you've seen some of those, the, the, uh, the African safari thing, maybe on National Geographic, where, where they're out exploring and they see a lion Right? And if the lion is, is charging or, or, or is on the prowl, they, they're afraid. And what do they do? They, they go get back in the Jeep and they're safe, right? Well, think about if that lion has wings. You can drive as far as you want. You're not getting away from the lion. So if the lion is set on getting you, the wings are just increase the fear that's created here by this, by this, by this image here. And so it's danger and fear. This, this beast arises and Daniel is afraid. But notice that this lion with wings, the, the wings are plucked off. And so, so there's something at work. There's someone at work that these lions are, or these wings are plucked off. And the beast was made like a man, standing on two feet with a sound mind. So that's the first beast. Well, then we get to the second beast, verse 5. Like a bear. Again, here's the, the, the simile. It's like a bear. It was raised up on one side. It had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth. And it, this was told, arise, devour much flesh. And so again, who is speaking to this bear? But whoever it is, it's saying, devour much flesh. So, so the, even these scary beasts are under the authority of another. But this beast is a beast of prey, a bear. Clearly, it's already devoured some prey. We're not given details about the three ribs. But we're, it has three ribs, so it's clearly already devoured. And it's told, devour more. The, this, the second beast is eager to tear apart more flesh. It's a frightening image. And then it's followed by a third beast. Like a leopard with four wings of a bird on its back. And so a leopard, a, a, a swift and agile lion or cat, and, and now there's four wings on its back. So it just increases its ability to, to, to hunt and to, to seek its prey. And this beast had four heads. 
So again, this is in all, it can know, look in all directions. It can, you can never escape the view of this third beast. Dominion, again, was given to it. Who's giving the dominion? There is something else at play here. These beasts are, are scary. I mean, one comment here said, I mean, I think when, when we read this, we may be tempted to think like maybe uh, a PG-13 Jurassic Park movie. Yeah, that, that's a little fake animal that Steven Spielberg put together. It's kind of scary. No, that this, is, this is horror film level of fear. I mean, Daniel, at the end, he, he's pale. He's so afraid. And, and he knows specifics about it. But, but these are fearful beasts. And after the first three come, though they were all scary in and of themselves, the, the fourth is unlike any of them. So look there, verse 7. A fourth beast, terrifying and dreadful and exceedingly strong. It had great iron teeth. It devoured and it broke in pieces and it stamped out what was left with its feet. With its bronze claws, we learn later. It was different from all the beasts that were before. It had ten horns. And so here, this fourth beast comes, and Daniel is, is going through the Rolodex of, of animals and, and beasts, and he's like, there's nothing like this one. This is different. All I can tell you, it's terrifying and dreadful and exceedingly strong. And so this is the fourth beast, the most fearful, the different beast. Now notice it does have iron teeth, and if you remember back to chapter 2, the, the feet, there was iron, part of iron in the feet. I might, again, I'm not, I'm not making any interpretations, but saying there are similarities there. But when he sees the fourth beast, he focuses on these, these horns. There's ten horns, and so there's ten horns, and there's a little one that comes up and supplants three of them. And so an eleventh horn comes up, and, and we suppose it, it, it grows and grows and gets bigger. But there's this little horn that replaces three of them. And then this little horn has eyes like the eyes of man and a mouth speaking great things. And so there's this, this, this horn that's come out from this beast that is just speaking proudly and arrogantly, has eyes like a man. And if we skip ahead, you, you heard me read in verse 17, we get some help on what's going on here because Daniel 17, when Daniel asks about it, he's told these four great beasts are four kings who are going to rise out of the earth. So we know from the passage itself, from the chapter itself, that these beasts represent four kings or four kingdoms. Right, just like the statue represented four different kingdoms. So, so we can know without a shadow of a doubt that these four kings, or these four great beasts, represent four kings or kingdoms. So we know that, and that's the extent of our certainty, because when it comes to which specific kings, which specific kingdoms, we're on shaky ground, because the passage itself doesn't give us answers. Even when you, you look New Testament to try and get evidence to, to help interpret, we don't have it. The passage just doesn't give us answers. And this is where I think recognizing the relationship between chapter 2 and 7 is helpful. They both are visions and dreams that make the same point. They both contain four kings or kingdoms. They both end with the kingdom of God reigning supreme. And so I think there's good reason to understand the four beasts in chapter 7 as, this, as the four beasts in Nebuchadnezzar's vision of chapter 2. I think the similarities is, is such that, that these are the same things, entities, if you remember, in Nebuchadnezzar's vision, there's only one kingdom that was certain. And that was the, the head of gold, right? Nebuchadnezzar told, you're the, gold, you're the head of gold. That's Babylon. That's you. And so I think here, I think the first beast is Nebuchadnezzar. I mean, you just think about it. He, he's a lion, and, and he has eagle's wings, and, and the wings are plucked, and then he becomes a man and has the right mind. I mean, that's Nebuchadnezzar, isn't it? And so even if the Lord is giving this vision to Daniel, and he's seen this in Nebuchadnezzar, he can say, oh, yeah. That came to pass. All that I'm going to see, I can trust that, that what the Lord says, namely that his kingdom is going to be forever, I can trust that's going to come to pass because I've seen it work in Nebuchadnezzar. So, so I think, 
The first beast probably represents Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon, but other than that, as to the identity of the, the, the sections of the statue and the identity of these other beasts, I honestly don't think anyone knows or can know because we're not told in the passage. I don't think God gives special revelation to certain people and says, well, this is who it is because he didn't give it to Daniel. He didn't give it to New Testament authors. We have to be careful with the, the, the amount of confidence we say, this is exactly what it is because the more, the, the, more, um, the more complicated the details, I tend to think the more helpful the broad interpretation is. That's just a good rule to follow. But what I see here in these four beasts, just like I said in the Sermon on chapter 2, these different kingdoms in the statue or in these beasts, they're, they're intended to, to give a philosophy of history rather than a precise analysis of history ahead of time. And so I think these beasts are giving us, giving Daniel, a philosophy of history rather than a precise analysis. So I don't think the point is to, to know exactly what is what. I think the point is to say, well, look at, this, look at this pattern that we see established. Even though we're not given specifics, even though none of the, the beasts are identified specifically, we still can step back and understand the point of the visions because the point is to understand just this a pattern of history. We, we see the nature of worldly kingdoms here. In this vision of this, this, this onslaught of beast after beast after beast. And so I think the best way to understand the four beasts of Daniel, yes, they represent kings or kingdoms that are going to rise from the earth. And yes, these kingdoms are going to be treacherous and evil and set on opposing God and devouring every other king and kingdom. And more than laboring, well, who is who? We simply step back and say that these four beasts represent a continual pattern that's going to accompany life on this earth until the new kingdom comes. It's a philosophy of history. This is what we're going to be experiencing. This is a pattern. And this pattern is going to continue until the new kingdom comes in the form of the rock or in the return of Christ and, and establishes completely and fully the kingdom of God on this earth forever. And so that's the pattern. God's people, I think what we see is God's people are going to reach the end. We're safe and secure. We're going to get there. But we're going to get there having come through beast after beast after beast, generation after generation after generation. So the number four would just be a, 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 a number of completeness, that, that this is the pattern. This is the nature of worldly kingdoms. I mean, listen to, to how one commentator explained. This was so helpful for me. He says, The beasts of the present world order may change their shape as centuries pass, but their violence and lust for power continues. Nebuchadnezzar turns into a Darius who becomes an Alexander the Great, and then in, a, in Antiochus Epiphanes, who is the Seleucid king who brutally opposed the Jews in the mid-2nd century. These fierce rulers are in turn followed by a Nero and a Domitian. Their fires of persecution continued to be stoked centuries later by the Inquisition. In the last century, we've seen further manifestations of the beast in the persons of Hitler and Stalin and Kim Jong-il. The frightening beast of this age present the, the frightening beasts of this age were present at the gas chambers and on the killing fields of Cambodia and Rwanda, and they are still tormenting the saints in Sudan and China and in other parts of the modern world. And so this is a philosophy of history interpretation as opposed to a precise analysis. So we don't say, well, well who's who, who's who? We simply say, as long as, as, as Christ tarries, there's going to be beastly kingdoms that are waging war on God's people. And so at the end of the day, I don't think it matters exactly who the first, second, third, and fourth beasts are. I don't think it really matters, right, to, to the uh, dismay of, of one of my children. Dad, who's the fourth beast? Who is it? 
Who's it going to be? I don't don't think it matters, and I really mean that. I don't think it matters because Daniel wasn't told the specifics, and we aren't told the specifics. What we need to know is that this life in this present age will always be a battle between two kingdoms. The nations of this world will always rage against the Lord and his anointed until he puts them down finally and completely. This is why the focus of apocalyptic literature is on the constant continuation of trials and persecution until the return of the king. Yeah, it's bad. It's going to get bad. But the end is coming. There's, there's, there's light at the end of the tunnel. And so instead of telling you who is what, I'm 100% comfortable in telling you that until Jesus comes back, this world will be filled with evil world powers and rulers. This is the nature of worldly kingdoms. They are beastly, and Christians, God's people, will more, than, more often than not be in the crosshairs of these powers and rulers because we are of another kingdom, a rival kingdom. And it's okay to be in the crosshairs of those powers and rulers because God is in control, and in the end, he delivers his people. He is the God whose kingdom is forever, which is the point that this next section of verses make. Look there at verses 9 through 14. As I look, thrones were placed. The Ancient of Days took his seat. And so this is a shift in scene. His clothing was white as snow and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames and its wheels. This is a a throne chariot. It's burning fire and a stream of fire issued and came out from before him. And thousand thousands served him and 10,000 times 10,000 stood before him. And the court sat in judgment and the books were opened. What a contrast. He sees these beasts in this vision, the the vision that was once filled with four frightening beasts. Daniel now sees a vision of someone else, the Ancient of Days. This is the only place in all the Bible that the Ancient of Days is used here. But there's no question as to who this is. This is the Lord himself. The Ancient of Days takes his seat. He's not ancient as an old. He's ancient as an eternal. The Ancient of Days. And so following this description... This is the pure and holy Lord of all, the the God of the universe who is sitting in righteous judgment. He's he's pure, he's holy, and and fire is around him. This This is righteous judgment. He is the divine judge, and there's no question about that. He's on his throne, and then thousands of thousands stood before him. This is the a heavenly court courtroom scene, and there's no question as to who has the authority and who is the judge. Court is in order, and the books are opened. And so so Daniel, as he sees this vision, he realizes that the little kingdoms have their day. However, God is the ancient of days. The the, the little kingdoms are going to rise and fall, but God in this vision sees the God whose days are everlasting. And his plans stretch into eternity, whereas plans of Nebuchadnezzar or or any of the other earthly rulers, they're, they're temporal. Here's the ancient of days whose rule will never end. And so Daniel beholds the Lord. I mean, a majestic scene similar to, to, to Isaiah in chapter 6 of, of, of the book of Isaiah. And so he beholds this, this scene of, of heavenly courtroom. And then all of a sudden, his attention is diverted from the ancient of days back to what he saw before. Look at verse 7. He, he hears this speaking, this, these loud these loud, word, these loud words, these obnoxious or these proud words from this little horn. And so the sound distracts him. He looks back from the heavenly courtroom. He, he sees this, this, this horn that has arisen from the fourth beast. And verse 11 continues, And as I looked, the beast was killed. The beast was killed. Its body was destroyed and given over to be burned with fire. And just like that, the scariest of scary beasts is destroyed. 
The, the horn is speaking and, and speaking blasphemous things and, and just yelling and shouting and speaking and speaking and, and all of a sudden, just like that, he's done. The beast is destroyed. And I think this is the point. As, as scary as it was, as threatening as it was, as powerful and as expansive as this fourth beast in the kingdom seemed, at the end of the day, the beast was defeated by the Lord himself in an instant. And Daniel sees that. I mean, just if, if, you, if you skip ahead to the interpretation in verses 17 and 18, the, the same event is described. Daniel asked for interpretation, and this is what he told. These four great beasts are four kings who are going to rise out of the earth. Verse 18, but the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever. Well, how did they do that? Because the beast is destroyed in an instant. So I think that verse 7 and 18 retell the exact thing that he saw. I mean, it's a matter-of-fact interpretation. There's two sides at war, the kings of this earth, the beasts, the kingdoms, against the Lord and the saints of the Most High. I mean, we've seen that in Daniel 1 through 6, haven't we? God's people have to stand against these pagan rulers. There's two kingdoms at work. At the end of the day, what this tells us is the beasts, all of them, fall. And the kingdom, God's, never does, but endures forever. This is the main idea. This is the reason for Daniel's dream. It's to encourage and give him hope. And so we see the, the ancient of days and the, the destruction of the beast. In verse 13, there, there's another subtle shift in scenery. Look there at verse 13. I saw in night visions, behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. So here's another image, one like a son of man. And, and this one comes on the clouds, comes to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was presented or was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. That language is reminiscent of what's been said of all the other kings in the book of Daniel. All nations and all, all, all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. So they're like, well, is this just another king that's going to come? But listen to the difference in verse 14 of this son of man, like a son of man. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples and nations should serve him. It continues, his dominion is an everlasting dominion. It's never going to pass away. His kingdom, one that will never be destroyed. This one like a son of man is not just a mere earthly king. This one like the son of man comes to the ancient of days and is given the authority that is given only to God himself. This one like a son of man would have an eternal everlasting dominion and an eternal everlasting kingdom. This Son of Man, as we read it, as we look back on this, as we read the rest of the, the scriptures, this is one of the peaks of Old Testament revelation. Because this one, like a Son of Man, is there's no question as to who he is. The identity of this one is not in question. This is the Lord himself, Jesus Christ, the one like a son of man who comes with, with deity and with this royal throne, this, this royal kingdom. He is the one who rules and reigns. And think about this. I mean, go all the way back to Genesis. Think about the creation account. There's, there's the, the Adam, the son of God, who's given dominion over what? Who is he given dominion over? The beast of the field, isn't he? And so the Son of Man is to rule and have dominion. And so here in Daniel 7, I think we're having a, a, a flashback and say, there is going to be one, the Son of Adam, the Son of David, who is going to have eternal dominion over all the beasts. And his kingdom is going to be forever. His dominion is never going to end. At the end of the day, there will be one king left, and his kingdom, his dominion, his rule will never end. And this one 
friend is none other than Jesus himself. In fact, read the Gospels with this in mind. Jesus refers to himself as the Son of Man more than any other title. It's his favorite title. He's the Son of Man. And I am confident and certain that he's doing so with Daniel 7 in mind. And I know this because in Mark chapter 14, when he's on trial, he says, you're going to see one like the Son of Man coming with clouds. I'm going to come in clouds. And they say, we don't need any more, more evidence. This is blasphemy. Crucify him. Because they know, right, they, 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 were, they were catching what he was putting out. I am the Son of Man from Daniel 7. And I've come to establish my kingdom. It's not how you think, but I've come. And with that claim, they say, kill him. He's claiming to be God. Because the one like the Son of Man is the human divine figure. The Messiah. I mean, read Revelation chapter 1. The one like a son of man is the one there among the seven lamps. Jesus is this one. And so, so this is a majestic vision, and we would think that Daniel is in a good place with a positive or hopeful disposition. Okay, I can breathe a sigh of relief because now I've seen the Ancient of Days, I've seen one like the Son of Man. But that's not the case, because look at the, the last section, verses 15 through 28. Verse 15, as for me, Daniel, my spirit within me was anxious, and the visions of my head alarmed me. So he's still anxious, and, and, and he's alarmed. He's still thinking about those beasts. And so, so he approaches one, we assume, is one of the angels in this vision, and asks, well, what does this mean? And that's what he's told. These four beasts represent four kings that are going to rise. But the saints are going to eventually receive the kingdom. And so Daniel, again, as we read, he wants to know more. He, he, he's, he's, he's focused on these ten horns and this little horn. And so he wants to know, well, what is that? And then the vision, again, in clear and concise terms, the, the, the horn made war on the saints prevailed over them until the ancient of days came and judgment was given for the saints of the Most High. And that's the main point. The beast, specifically this one horn, wages war against God's people, prevails over them for a period of time, but that time is fixed. And the horn, whoever he is, at the moment seems to be winning, conquering, devastating God's people, devastating God's plan, putting God's, God's kingdom to shame. But then, in a moment, judgment comes. And God wins. I mean, that's how it's explained there, verse 21 and 22. This little horn rules until the ancient of days comes and passes judgment. And judgment comes. And the point is, when all hope seems lost, judgment comes, and the saints possess the kingdom. The saints win. Saints win in the end. That's the point. And so even the, the, the timeline in, in verses 23 through 27, yeah, there's more specifics given about the, this kingdom. Who, who's gonna, the, there's going to be this one horn that's different. It's going to put down other three and going to speak against the Most High and wear out the saints and, and change the times and the law and the saints going to be given into the saints. There are details given, but, but they're still not identified. And Daniel, as he hears this, he's affected by this, isn't he? I mean, verse 28, th this is the end of the matter. Right? My thoughts greatly alarmed me. My color changed. I was afraid. I mean, as Daniel's writing, I mean, he's not looking forward to the prospect of the fourth beast, I'm sure. I mean, remember as he's writing, he and his people had already been exiled. They'd already seen Jerusalem, the temple destroyed. They'd been exiled. It'd been rough for the Israelites. And now he gets a vision that things aren't going to get easier, but instead things are going to get harder. That's not easy for an exile to hear. And so Daniel is afraid. I mean, I think we see the, the, the human side of Daniel here. This is not an easy thing for him. As clear as I think this is, Daniel still is wrestling with, with this. And so in light of the fear or alarm, even in light of all the specific details, verse 26, 
tells us the court will sit in judgment. The little horn will be destroyed. The kingdom, dominion, the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High. And his kingdom shall be an everlasting kingdom and all dominion shall serve him. The God whose kingdom endures forever. That's the end of the matter. At the end of the day, there's one kingdom that will stand and one king who will rule. And so if you want an application point to take home, that's it. Yeah, we, we have to recognize the nature of earthly kingdoms. Yes, we must recognize that life in, a, in the kingdom consists of suffering. But at the end of the day, the take home from Daniel 7 is simply this. Our God reigns. His kingdom is forever. Therefore, our hope cannot, must not be in any earthly power. We have one life here on this earth. And we're part of God's kingdom and our lives are to be given for that kingdom because that kingdom is never going to end. And so our hope is in the one who died and rose again, the one who commissioned his followers. Do you remember post-resurrection? What Jesus told his disciples before he sent them out? Do you remember what Jesus said? All authority. Where? Heaven, earth has been given where? To me. All authority. This is a sovereign, ruling, and reigning son of man who's been given all dominion, all power, all authority. And what does he do? He tells his disciples, go. Go make disciples. And and don't forget, I'm with you until the end. And so we have hope because the ancient of days is still on his throne and he's given dominion and authority to the son who gave his life for us that we might be under his kind and gracious rule. And so we, here, here's the last quote. We know the Son of Man. It's Christ. We know the Son of Man who is at the same time the head and shepherd of the body. And listen to this. The shepherd sees the lion coming. The shepherd sees the bear and the leopard and the fourth beast. The shepherd sees them all and he does not flee. Therefore, we have hope. Let's pray as we close.